Thank you, Tracy, for leading us in prayer and, and reading scripture for us. Just one note on Kendra. She didn't get her pass for yesterday, which she's kind of hoping for, a long weekend and all, but uh, uh, she does have a pass scheduled for two weeks from yesterday, a day pass scheduled for two weeks from yesterday, so, uh, so she's so looking, definitely looking forward to that. Um, we're continuing in our series on metaphors of the church. We have looked at a bunch of different metaphors already. We've looked at the metaphor of an embassy. We've looked at the metaphor of a flock, of a temple, uh, of a family. And this week, we're going to look at a metaphor that is, is quite interesting. Uh, it, it's the metaphor of the church as a body. And what's interesting about this metaphor is that this one is used exclusively by the Apostle Paul. I'm not saying that it's the only one that Paul uses. What I mean is, is that Paul is the only one who uses it. Out of the, all the gospel or New Testament writers, he's the only one who talks about the church as the body of Christ. And we're not entirely sure why he's the only one who talks about the church that way, but we think it may have something to do with his conversion. When I say we, I don't mean like me and my buddies. I mean sort of scholars down through history, obviously. Um, so if you, uh, if you know about Paul's conversion, you know that uh, he was on the road to Damascus, and he was on his way actually to find Christians in the city of Damascus and arrest them and bring them back to be tried in Jerusalem. And on the, his way to Damascus, he saw a great light, he fell to the ground, and then he heard a voice. And the voice was Jesus, and the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now, here's the interesting thing. During Jesus' ministry on earth, we have no record of Saul having actually met Jesus during his time on earth. And yet, Jesus was describing the persecution that the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, describing that persecution as persecuting him personally. In other words, what Jesus was saying to Paul was, is if you're going after Christians, then you are going after me. It's the same thing. If you're persecuting followers of Jesus Christ, you are personally, you are persecuting Jesus Christ himself. And that's how closely Jesus identifies himself with his people. So much so that what happens to us happens to him. Now, what we're talking about here is the biblical doctrine of what's called union with Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, and what I mean by that is, because, you know, you can't assume everybody understands what that means. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who God in the flesh, in a mysterious way, God came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. You believe that, and you believe that this Jesus Christ lived a perfectly obedient life to God. He, was, he, was, he, he, he loved God with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his strength, and then he died on the cross, a death of a criminal. He was crucified unjustly to pay the penalty for your sin because you haven't lived a perfectly obedient life. You haven't loved God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. 
but you trust in him and in his perfect life for you and in his substitutionary death for you. That is, he substituted himself on the cross and died in your place. If you believe that and that Jesus rose then from the dead, that God raised him from the grave, and I don't mean resuscitated him because lots of people have been resuscitated. Uh, If you watch uh, shows about doctors and, and, and ERs and stuff, there are people who come in and they die on the table and then they get you know clear boom and the paddles and they shake rattle and roll the next thing you know they're back to life they've been resuscitated that's not what happened to Jesus no 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 Jesus was resurrected he never died again anybody else who's been resuscitated has died again eventually Jesus was victorious over death meaning that death couldn't touch him anymore it couldn't get him anymore if you believe that That's what I mean, all that, by if you are a believer, if you believe that, then the Bible says that you are united to Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, this isn't a sermon on union with Christ, so I can't give you everything. I'm going to have to boil it down very, very pointedly into two things. It means, first of all, this. It means Jesus is in you. The Holy Spirit... The third person of the Trinity, Paul calls the Spirit of Christ. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that means that the Holy Spirit has mysteriously and spiritually taken up residence in you. He has given you spiritual life. And I know, like, these are terms that just roll off our tongues, and half the time we don't even know what we're talking about. What does it mean that we have spiritual life? Well, it means that you are awakened, you are alive to these spiritual realities that you were not awakened to and alive to before. Because the Bible says we were dead in our sins and trespasses, meaning, and you're like, I'm not dead, I'm fully alive, I'm walking around, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm clearly, my heart is beating and I have a pulse, I am alive, I have brain waves. No, 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 you were spiritually dead, meaning that you were unable to respond to the spiritual stimuli that is around you because you're spiritually dead. But the Holy Spirit has come into your heart and he has given you life, he has resuscitated you, he has... Boom! Like spiritually, he has hit you with the paddles and made you alive so that you now are aware of your sinfulness. You now are aware that you are in rebellion to God. You now are aware that you were running away from him, but that he hunted you down and called you into relationship himself. And when he says things like, I love you, you don't go, oh, God loves me. That's neat. You go, God loves me. God loves me. That's because Christ is in you. That's what union with Christ means. But it also means that you are in Christ. What does that mean? Well, verse 5, it's interesting, it says, right? So, in Christ, we, though many members form one body, and each member belong to all the others. It even describes this being in Christ. To be in Christ means that All the things that apply to Jesus Christ, literally, they apply to you spiritually. All the things that apply to Jesus Christ, literally, now apply to you spiritually. Everything that he has done, actually, you have done spiritually in him. So he has died actually for sin. Well, it's as though you have died to sin. He has risen 
uh, triumphant over death. It is as though you have risen. He is standing to inherit the entire universe that his father will give him. Will you stand to inherit the entire universe that the father will give you? Now, this is huge. This is everything. Union with Christ is everything. If you are a Christian, then the fact of your being united to Jesus Christ is the most awe-inspiring doctrine of all. Everything else is an aspect of that fundamental reality. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because this is all by way of introduction. Here's why I'm telling you all of this. That's what makes sense of this metaphor. You have to understand that to understand this metaphor uh, of you and I being members of the body of Christ. Paul calls us that in Ephesians 5, verse 30. He says, we are members of the body of Christ. We are, in some ways, the bodies of Christ together. The church, spiritually speaking, is the body of Christ. So when someone says, well, what does Jesus look like? You're supposed to look at the church and say, well, when you look at the church, when you see how the church behaves, when you see how the church interacts with itself, the, the people, the members uh, who are part of it, when you see how the church interacts with the world, when you, when you ask the church, what are the things that you value and that matter to you? And, and when you look at the character of the church, what are the, what are the virtues that, that the church displays? What you're supposed to see, I keep saying supposed to, eh? <laughs> is Jesus on display. Now, we're going to look at how that metaphor ought to affect us, and we're going to think of it in two ways. We're going to see how it affects the way we think about ourselves individually, this metaphor of the church as the body of Christ, and how it affects how we think about the church, those two things. So first of all, we're going to look at how it affects the way we should think about ourselves, and you see this in verses 3 through 5. Remember, it says... In verse 3, uh, sorry, verse 4, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. When you become a Christian, as I said, you become a member of this thing called the body of Christ. Now think about this. In our modern Western context in our culture right now there are certain things that we value very much so we value freedom we value autonomy and we value self-expression these are three things that are extremely important to us and we believe that these things sort of make up what what is a meaningful life as a human being on this earth. And so, so we value freedom, meaning we value the ability to decide for ourselves what we think the good life is, what we think is right versus wrong, what we think is worth pursuing uh, as, a, as a human being on this planet, what, may, what ought to make one happy. So that's, that's the first thing we value. You va we value autonomy. We value the ability to make those decisions ourselves. 
We value having a authority over our own lives and not having other people impose their authority on us or, other inst- or institutions impose their authority on us. And we value self-expression. We value this idea that, that what I think I am on the inside, I've got to express that to the outside world and I, I expect and demand that the outside world will validate that expression of myself. These are three things that we value highly in our culture. But here's the thing, this metaphor of the church as the body, it actually undermines every single one of those values. Because this metaphor says, you know what? If you're part of a body, then that means you're not totally free. My knee cannot go and do whatever it wants. It gets direction from my hips. I mean, what happens when your knee goes and tries to do whatever it wants? It buckles, and you end up like Gerald under, under the knife getting surgery. His knee would not cooperate. What happens when, when you are part of a body and part of a member, and you want to be autonomous, and you want to say you're, you're a finger, and you want to say, well, I think that the finger ought to decide for itself what it's useful for. I don't have a funny thing to go with that one. I'm sorry. And when you're part of a member, when you're part of a body, you, 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 you can't... You can't decide for yourself what you're going to be, self-expression. You, you are part of a unit that is bigger. And this affects, ought to affect how you think about yourself. And let me show you how. In verse 3, it says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly than you, of your, sorry, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Paul uses this phrase, sober judgment, and it's the opposite, actually literally, of inebriated judgment or drunk judgment. Now, uh, some of you are probably familiar with drunkenness, at least by way of association. What, what, What happens to a drunk? A drunk is a person who often feels happier than maybe they normally would, and they often feel more courageous than they normally would, and therefore they often do stupider things than they normally would. And why is that? I mean, because alcohol actually is a depressant, right? Uh, it, it's, it's not an upper, it's a downer. But, but when people are inebriated, they feel better. And the reason they feel better is because they're actually losing touch with reality a little bit. And so what happens is, is they, they start to view themselves differently, and oftentimes they, they view their abilities in, in a more positive light than they ought to. So, so it's when a person is inebriated that they say, you know what, I'm, I'm 50 years old, but I can do 400 push-ups, and they start going, right? Or they say, you know, I'm 5'2", 140 pounds, and I can take on that 250-pound linebacker outside of the bar, Right? Or they say, yeah, you know, I remember when I was uh, young, I used to be able to climb trees like you wouldn't believe. And I know I'm now 45 years old, but I'm going to show you how I can climb that tree. And that's when you hear stories of people being rushed to the hospital and breaking their leg. Because of our inflated view of ourselves, we do foolish things. Now, understand something. In our world right now, oh, by the way, did you know that studies, I I did a little research on this, studies have shown 
that when people are inebriated, they do actually tend to have, I know there's things called depressive drunks and stuff like that. Don't throw the exceptions to the rules at me, okay? These exceptions prove the rules. They don't disprove the rules. Studies show that people generally, when they're inebriated, they, over, they overestimate their uh, ability at things, right? Like they think that they're better drivers than they actually are. And why do you think we have problems with drunk driving? Because drunk people can't make wise decisions and so they get behind the wheel and they think that they're fine, but they're actually not. I just wanna make sure I threw that one in there because I worked really hard to find that tidbit for you. Um, in our world, we are constantly encouraged to find our validation in our ability and in our, in, our, in, our, uh, in our successes. We're constantly encouraged to find our validation in how well we do something, in how much better we are at something than others are. And so we are constantly seeking ways to validate ourselves and trying to pump ourselves up and looking in the mirror and before we have a big meeting and say, go get him, killer, you can do this, you got this, you, you go, girl. We, we're constantly trying to, to, to pump ourselves up and, and, and tie our self-worth to our ability to accomplish things, even when it's unnecessary. In 2009, um, Michael Jordan and David Robinson were both inducted to the Basketball Hall of Fame. Now, it's somewhat disputable, but most people still think that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player to ever play the game. He does not need to boast. He's got six championship rings. He's got like six or more MVPs. My son will tell me all the things I got wrong uh, about these stats after the sermon. But um, he's... he's very clearly far and away one of the greatest players to ever live so when he walks into a room he doesn't have to wear a t-shirt that says you know nba all-star everybody knows how incredibly good he is but at his 2009 induction into the hall of fame you should go watch it sometime you can see his speech on youtube it was a sad display of the greatest basketball player probably to ever ever have played the game thumping his chest dissing his critics. Do you know that he actually had, so he didn't make his sophomore basketball team. This is in high school, grade 10, I think that's when you're a sophomore. He didn't make the team that year. And another kid got picked over him. He wasn't technically cut, he just didn't make the team. He flew that kid who beat him out to, I think it was in Las Vegas where they held the, the Hall of Fame induction ceremony, flew him to the ceremony so that he would be there to watch Michael Jordan get inducted in the Hall of Fame. And it was all about how, how great he was, and he doesn't need to do it. Contrast that with David Robinson, also one of the greatest players to ever play the game. He was called the Admiral. And he was sometimes critiqued or criticized for being kind of soft and soft-spoken and not a very, you know, out there flamboyant kind of player on the field or on the court. But all the while, while he was giving his uh, induction speech, he spent the entire time thanking people. Thanked his coaches, thanked his teammates, thanked his wife, thanked his parents, thanked his sons, his three sons. 
and said that without them, he couldn't have made the, accomplished all the things he accomplished as a, as a basketball player. Now, why did he do that? Because David Robinson understood that regardless of how excellent he was as an individual, he was still part of a team. He was part of something bigger than himself. And he knew that he could not actually accomplish all the things he accomplished without his team. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 21, it says this, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. David Robinson understood that. No matter how good Michael Jordan was at basketball, he couldn't win six championships without a team. He needed Scottie Pippen and the others. He needed them. And think about the body of Christ. No matter how important and how uh, obvious the gifts of one member of the church, if you have a church that's, if you, think, if you have a body that's all hands, it's grotesque, right? We would call that a deformity. We would say that's not the way it's meant to be. This metaphor, what I'm trying to tell you, what this metaphor does is it humbles us. It humbles us. It reminds us that we're not all that, that we're not, we're not autonomous. We're not, we're not actually free. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. Actually, do you know, you can't even really think of yourself apart from the church when you're a Christian. Because you see, the church is an organism, it is not a machine. If you take a machine and you take a screw out of a machine and you put it on the table, and you look at that thing, you, you can still... You can still describe all the properties of that screw. It's, I, I hope this analogy works. It worked in my head, but the more I'm using it now as I talk, I'm afraid it might be weird. But I'm going to try anyway. I'm, I'm pushing forward. The screw's ontology, meaning its being, its essence, is not affected by whether it's in a machi the machine or not. Because it can be used in all kinds of different places in all kinds of different ways. And you can understand the screw as a thing apart from the machine that it is a part of. But you can't do that with an organ of the body. Because the, the very essence of an organ of the body is the thing that it is used for in the body. So you take a heart out of the body, you can't understand what a heart is without describing the system of a body and the role that the heart plays in a body. And the point I'm trying to make here, and I think I'm making it poorly, is that a Christian shouldn't actually even be able to describe who they are outside of their relationship of the church. How often do you have it when someone you meet says, so, I, yeah, tell me about yourself. And maybe one of the first things you say is, I'm a Christian, because it's a very important part of your identity. But do you also say, I'm a part of Grace Valley Church, or I'm a part of the Church of Jesus Christ, or I'm a part of the body of Christ? No. But we should, because even though Christ, as head of the body, is the center, is the, the director of our core identity, who we actually are is bound up in our relationship to one another. And you might say, boy, that's pretty extreme. And yeah, it is pretty extreme, but that's because it's related to point two. Let's move to point two so that I don't continue confusing you. In verse five, it says, in Christ, we, though many, 
form one body, and each member belongs to the others. We belong to one another in the church the way organs belong to each other in a body. We all need one another because without one another, we actually die. That's the implication of Paul's metaphor here. A screw doesn't cease being a screw. It has no vitality, uh, uh, so it doesn't cease being a screw when it's disconnected from the machine that it's a part of. I know, I keep beating this analogy, right? Like, why won't I just let it go? But a heart, a kidney, if you remove a kidney from a body, the kidney doesn't continue to be a kidney. It just becomes a piece of meat that eventually disintegrates because it's not connected to the thing that gives it vitality. So let me explain these implications, or let me explain the implications of that. First of all, the church is necessary for your faith. The church is necessary for our faith. We don't, we don't believe that's true in our day and age. We believe that Jesus and me works just fine. Or we describe the church as this invisible, universal network that, that doesn't, we don't really have any real connection with, but because we're a Christian, we are connected to it spiritually. But the reality is, is that, that if it's true that, that the church is the body of Christ, then, then we cannot operate that way and survive. Look, we, we talked about the church as a temple, and we said, you know, if you take a stone out of a, out of a, a building and you put it on the ground, that becomes a useless stone. But in this metaphor, the implications are even more serious. If you take a kidney out of a body and you set it on the floor, the kidney dies. If you disconnect yourself from the church, you are dismembering yourself. And the effects of that is that you, you cannot continue to live with vitality spiritually. You begin to wither. And eventually you'll die. So the church is necessary for our faith. Second of all, the church is necessary for us to fulfill our purpose. Organs need to be in the body in order for them to fulfill their mission. Kidneys need to be connected to the body to do their job. If you look at this gift list in verses 5 and 6, there's all kinds of different gifts, right? But, and we're going to actually, in the, in the few few weeks we're going to start looking at spiritual gifts and what they are and how they're how they operate and all this kind of stuff but for now understand this they're all meant to serve the one body they're all connected for a purpose they all have a role we in fact are 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 not just dependent upon one another but we are actually interdependent with one another a concern that I have and many pastors have because, you know, pastors occasionally get together and like everybody else, we grumble and complain about things because we're human beings. And one of the things we grumble and complain about is, is our concern about the consumeristic uh, tendencies that have kind of infiltrated people's thinking about the church. And I'm not saying that, that that's what's happening here at Grace Valley. I'm just describing, I'm just describing a concern that, that we see, a trend that we see within the church. So let me give you illustrations. And I, and I admit, these are actually Grace Valley uh, um, illustrations. I've had people come to me and say, you know what? 
I love your church. I love the worship. I love the preaching. I love the community. I love the fact that you care very deeply about your community that you find yourself in and you're trying to have an impact on your local community and you are close by. You know, I live kind of in the area, but I don't think I can join this church because you don't have a teen ministry. Or I've had people come to me and say, you know, all those same things, like this, like this, like this, like this, but, you know, we want a church that has a lot of diversity and you don't seem to have a lot of diversity and usually they're talking about ethnic diversity. I've even had people say, well, I, I really like all these things, etc., etc., but I don't really like the worship time and so I can't join your church. Now, what's interesting about this is that they don't come to the church and say, hmm, I really like all these things, I think I can grow here, etc., I see they don't have a teen ministry. Hmm, maybe what they need is someone to help start a teen ministry. Or, hmm, it's not a very diverse church. You know, actually, the number of times we've heard that time, that one, we'd be very diverse by now if people had stayed. If the first person who said, wait a minute, there's not a lot of diversity here, I can bring some diversity here. We would have had some diversity. But do you understand what I'm saying is that we have flipped from starting to see the church as a place where we have gifts that we can bring, and we may not know exactly what those are in, in the early stages of, of being part of a church community, but we have this, this servant service mentality rather than this consumer mentality. Things would change. If we would, if we would focus on serving rather than being served, I can guarantee you that every one of us would be served. Yes, you need to be served and blessed by your brothers and sisters in a church community because that's what it means for the body to serve one another. The blood gets served by being cleaned by the kidneys. I hope that's true. Please uh, see me later, um, Reuben, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but the blood feeds the kidneys. So they're both serving one another. And if we would focus our attention on how we could serve, I promise you, you'll get served. But that's not how people approach the church today. Our problem shouldn't be worrying about how we get served. Our problem should be worrying about how we can serve. And then last thing, you need the church. So you need the church to fulfill your purpose because every... Let me just emphasize this again. Every one of us has spiritual gifts that has been given to us by God to be used for the body, for the, the sake of strengthening and encouraging and building up the body of Christ. We all have them. And if we don't use them, then we're not fulfilling our purpose for which we were joined to Jesus in the first place. And then the last thing, you need the church, and I didn't know how to, how to describe this properly, but you need the church to live fully and to experience life fully. What do I mean by that? When you are part of a body, then the experiences that other parts of the body experience somehow become your experience as well. So you ever stub your toe? the pain just shoots up through everything, right? Your whole body is like, Bleh! and when you go for a run and the endorphins kick in in your brain, your whole body feels good and benefits from it. We are, we 
exist as that kind of organism. And so when you are part of this community, then you have opportunities through your fellow members to experience what it means to be a fully live being in Christ. Because you celebrate the joys that others have with Christ, but you also, you also carry the burdens that others feel in Christ. And I know you might think, well, I want the joy part, but I don't want the burden part. That's because you're a modern Westerner who believes in <laughs> self-expression and freedom and autonomy, just like me. We're going to go to the table. One of the things the table is meant to do as we take the cup and as we take the bread, one of the things the table is meant to do is to remind us not just that we are being fed by Jesus' body and blood mysteriously through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our faith is being strengthened by him. But we are also being reminded that we are part of his body as we look around this place one, and another, to, one to another. Our union, even though you may not feel it and experience it all that well right now, our union with one another is more profoundly intimate even than the ones that brothers and sisters have with one another. It's the, the joining of organs and bone and marrow where, where we, are, we are each other. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 when he's describing the Lord's Supper. He says that one of the things that we need to be able to do when we, to, in order to take the, the supper uh, properly is we need to be able to discern the body. And what he means by that is we need to be able to see who is the church. And it's us, those who confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. That's us the body of Christ. It's mysterious. And I'm not exactly sure, in all honesty, I'm not exactly sure how all these implications that I've just tried to describe to you, how, what, I'm not exactly sure what it looks like in practice. But I hope that we can find out together. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the church. This mysterious thing that is the body of Christ of which we are a part. We are so disconnected as, as a culture in these last 50 years or so. We have become so disconnected to this kind of communal language that the, body, that, that the, the Bible uses to describe the church. That to even preach about it, I find myself, frankly, grasping at mysteries that are beyond my comprehension. And so I pray that everybody here would have heard from you and that your spirit will have spoken to them because I feel so inadequate to describe this mysterious, beautiful thing that is the body of Christ. And I pray that we would commit to one another in such a way that we can begin to 
uh, live out of this metaphor more and more and then know more deeply and more deeply what 